how Trump talks about Russian hacking, robocalling firm leaves Virginia voter data online, and self-sovereign identity and the role of blockchain. These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Nick Holland. It would be nearly impossible to have avoided news this week of the Helsinki summit between Presidents Trump and Putin. President Donald Trump has stated that he believes the Russian government attempted to interfere in US elections. But at times, he appears to have also suggested that the interference may be attributable to other countries instead. Here's Matt Schwartz, editor of Data Breach Today and Europe, providing some analysis. How does President Donald Trump talk about Russia's state-sponsored information warfare campaign against the United States? Here's Trump on Monday at a press conference he held in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me and some others. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, He just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. Trump's comments triggered a firestorm, with senior lawmakers from both sides of the aisle calling on him to stand up to Putin. In response, Trump met with some members of Congress on Tuesday when he attempted to clarify his remarks. The sentence should have been, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be Russia. Sort of a double negative. I have on numerous occasions noted our intelligence findings that Russians attempted to interfere in our elections. Trump added that his administration is doing everything in its power to counter Russia's ongoing interference efforts. But will it be enough? The U.S. government has already been calling out Russia for its election interference efforts since October 2016. That's when the Department of Homeland Security and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence blamed the Kremlin for attempting to influence U.S. elections. In January 2017, the U.S. intelligence community issued an assessment saying that Putin himself had ordered the U.S. election interference campaign targeting both of the country's major political parties. It said Russian fronts such as Guccifer 2.0 and DC Leaks were used to leak information stolen from the Democratic National Committee as part of Russia's effort to hurt Hillary Clinton's chances of winning. Subsequently, authorities have confirmed that Russian hackers probed dozens of states' electoral systems, stole 500,000 voting records from one state believed to be Illinois, and also targeted voting machine manufacturers. Trump received a highly classified briefing about that assessment two weeks before he took office. And on Wednesday, the New York Times reported that the evidence he was shown included Russian military officers' texts and emails, as well as information from a top-secret source close to Putin, who described to the CIA the Kremlin's hacking and disinformation strategies in great detail. Subsequently, Trump has said he believes Russia was behind the election interference campaign. But he sometimes also says others may have been involved. Here's Trump speaking with John Dickerson of CBS News in April 2017. I'll go along with Russia. Could have been China. Could have been a lot of different groups. So President Donald Trump is ambivalent about, or not ambivalent, you're just not not sure. No, we have to find out what happened. I'd love to find out what happened. But you don't think it's I can tell you one thing. It had nothing to do with us. The concern with how Trump talks about Russian hacking hinges in part on whether he's taking it seriously enough, as well as ensuring the right resources are being brought to bear. The White House says its response to Russian interference has been very tough. 
This year, the administration has sanctioned 16 Russian individuals and entities for their roles in Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Last week, the Justice Department announced that a federal grand jury indicted 12 Russian GRU military intelligence officers on hacking and election interference charges. The administration has also begun sharing threat intelligence information with states and promises to help better secure voting machine systems. But will those efforts be enough and in time to blunt Russia's ongoing information warfare efforts? Can the administration safeguard voting systems as well as faith in this November's election results? One way or another, in less than four months, we'll have the answers to those questions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. While remaining on the theme of elections, RoboSent, a company that specializes in robocalling voters, left nearly 3,000 files containing detailed data about Virginia voters online by mistake. The data has been secured, but the incident points again to ongoing problems of security misconfigurations in repositories and lack of end-to-end encryption. Here's ISMG's Managing Editor Security and Technology, Jeremy Kirk, with more. A voter marketing firm that specializes in robocalling left nearly 3,000 files containing detailed data about Virginia voters online by mistake. The data has been secured, but the mistake points again to ongoing problems of security misconfigurations and a lack of end-to-end encryption. The unencrypted data was stored in an Amazon S3 storage bucket by a company called RoboSent. The bucket did not require authentication. The data was found by Bob Diachenko, who's head of communications with the security vendor Chromtech Alliance. Diachenko discovered the data while using an online search tool that indexes open S3 buckets. It was developed by a site calling itself Gray Hat Warfare. He notified RoboSent, which has since secured the data. The data includes the usual information that states record as part of a voter registration record, such as full name, address, age, and birth year. RoboSense data also contained email addresses and phone numbers. Further, it contained inferences about political affiliations based on voting trends and demographic data such as ethnicity, language, and education. Security experts as well as Amazon have emphasized the danger of not properly securing S3 storage buckets. And over the years, researchers have found astounding amounts of unsecured personal data in such repositories. Pravin Kathari is CEO of CypherCloud. He says that cloud providers can only preach best practices and that the leak wouldn't have been an issue had the data been encrypted. But so much data about U.S. voters has been exposed in other leaks, it's questionable whether RoboSense leak actually increases the risk or potential for identity theft. Last year, cybersecurity researcher Chris Vickery came across a batch of 198 million U.S. voter registration records. The data came from a company called DeepRoot Analytics and was exposed for about two weeks company made a mistake when changing access control settings. Also, laws across the 50 U.S. states vary in relation to access and use of voter registration data. All but 11 states allow some public access to electoral rolls. All states do, however, allow political parties and candidates to have access to voter registration records. But the robocall incident is still a good reminder to those using S3 buckets. Double-check those configurations. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. There may be a sea change occurring in identity ownership. With recent egregious data breaches and the Facebook Cambridge Analytica debacle raising awareness of how identities can be captured, sold and even replicated, 
There are numerous initiatives underway to flip identity ownership away from third-party identity brokers and back to the individual. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Chris Boscolo, founder and CEO of Xeno Labs, and the creator of LifeID, a blockchain-based platform designed to enable self-sovereign identity. I asked Chris, just what is self-sovereign identity? At the heart of it, a self-sovereign identity is an identity where the user has control over the data that makes up their identity. So if we think about the way identity um, is transacted in the world today, let's, let's imagine a scenario where you might uh, go to a bank to get, create an account. To prove who you are, you will hand over quite a bit of information to the bank. You'll hand over your name, possibly a social security number, usually an address, and if it's other kinds of, you know, if it's really uh, stringent requirements, you might hand over your place of employment, all of these things that the bank will turn around and do a search in centralized databases for this data about you to confirm does all this data match what you handed them. With a self-sovereign identity, this problem is um, flipped around. Instead of other companies and organizations like such as Equifax holding central reams of data about all of these people, each individual relationship you have through your life, you will, you will create, or the other entity will create a digitally cryptographically verified claim about that relationship. For example, your employer will create a digitally verified claim that you work there starting on some date and possibly ending on some date. They will hand that claim over to you. When you need to prove that you worked at that company to say the bank, you the user, the identity holder, will hand that claim over to the bank and say, see, this cryptographic claim signed by the employer proves that I worked at that employer. And what makes it self-sovereign is that the date, all of those claims stay in the possession of the user. And the second part of what makes it self-sovereign is because it uses cryptography, the end user is the one in control of the keys that make those cryptographic signatures possible. That, in a nutshell, is what self-sovereign identity is. It's, a, it's an, a new architecture for how we transact our identities in a digital world. That's it for this week's ISMG Security Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Nick Holland. Catch you next time.